Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO, and I thank you for joining us tonight for another special program in our Writers Live series. I'm really delighted to introduce the person who will introduce tonight's speaker. Bob Emery knows Baltimore better than most people. He was born here and educated through our public schools, and he spent the majority of his professional life trying to make Baltimore a better city for all. And what a professional life it's been. A lawyer, a former city council member, and head of the city's Department of Housing and Community Development. Then, a stint in Washington, where he served as Undersecretary of Housing and Urban Development, and later as Executive Director of the President's Task Force on Urban Policy. Returning to Baltimore, he served as President of the Board of Commissioners for the Baltimore City Public Schools, and later as President of the Maryland State Board of Education. And now, as president of the ABLE Foundation, Bob has been able to further the foundation's commitment. And I have to quote it because it's really striking. To give hope by opening the doors of opportunity to the disenfranchised, knowing that no community can succeed and thrive if those who live on the margins are not included. As you can see, he's dedicated to this commitment and it underscores everything he does. It's for this reason that he's often sought off for advice. Now, Bob, you don't know this, but I, like many others, consider you a mentor. I've adopted you from afar. <laughs> he does know this, that just recently I called on him for insight and inspiration on how you can make the Pratt Library better and then make the city better. And you willingly came here and you gave you my you gave your time and your talent to help me in the library, and I thank you. Tonight, it is fitting that you introduce Buzzy Hedelman. You are passionate about the need to improve the city's public educational system, and all of us are grateful for the ABLE Foundation's role in funding programs that are both innovative and accountable. Bob, as you know, you know public education, and now you know it too. And for this reason, it's especially fitting, and we're very pleased that he's going to introduce tonight's speaker. If I'd known I was going to get such a nice invitation, I would have paid more to get this honor to introduce Buzzy. The, uh, there's this book, uh, it's a classroom stupid, written by somebody named Calman Hedelman. And you may be surprised that that's Buzzy Hedelman uh, who wrote that book. Buzzy is... Uh, a real unsung hero in Baltimore City. I don't think there's any layman, anybody that has done it for without compensation, that knows more and has devoted more to public education in Baltimore City over the last half century than Buzzy Hedelman. And to have 550 footnotes, which I counted uh, before I came over here, which is a... a <laughs> there was going to be a separate book with his footnotes in it. Buzzy uh, has devoted his uh, life. I don't know what turned him on at what point in time. He suffered a severe childhood trauma that he's overcome and being turned down in his application to City High School and being required to go to poly remedial education. But uh, after majoring in bridge at Duke College, at Duke University, uh, and then going to Maryland Law School, uh, Buzzy, on one side, the non-clearly public education, but the very clearly related being, I think, the only person in, America, in uh, Maryland history, maybe the only person in the United States history, to be 
head of the local welfare agency, Department of Social Services, and head of the state human services uh, department, uh, devoted obviously to the needs of the less fortunate among us. And serving on the city school board is over and above the call of duty for anybody. But having done it and then return to the school board, uh, I don't know, 20 years later, 25 years later, is probably also unique in the history of, of this city. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Buzzy went to Robert Slavin, then at the, uh, and, and still at the Center for Social Organization of Schools at Hopkins, and said, you're getting all this federal money to deal with the education of uh, poor children. Why don't you put down on a piece of paper what it is you think should be done? And as a result of that visit, the Success for All program came about, uh, created by uh, Robert Slavin, which is now one of the most highly acclaimed and successful uh, elementary school interventions in the country. But the most important thing to me about uh, Buzzy is the fact that uh, he, with no compensation and no acclaim, represents special education children uh, against the school system on behalf of, of among the least fortunate, the even more unfortunate group in our population who has been labeled sometime accurately, many times inaccurately, as needing special assistance. And these uh, young people and their parents usually have no advocate in dealing with the lawyers of the school system whose main motive is to spend as little money and to brush the issue under the rug. Just a few comments uh, from uh, people that know something about education, unlike me, that have uh, reviewed this book. Uh, Dr. E.D. Hirsch, who was one of my heroes, University of Virginia, and the author of Cultural Literacy, says, this forceful and clear book cuts through tired left versus right slogans about public education. If Hedelman's recommendations were followed, our schools would be greatly improved. And then Frederick Hess uh, the, the, uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, drawing on practical experience and an impressive body of research, Buzzy Hedelman provides a thought-provoking take on why school reform efforts have come up short and what it will take to deliver the promise of 21st century school reform. Hedelman drills down past the pat solutions of the day to take a hard look at our systemic challenges and what will, what will it take to address them. This challenging, bracing book will prove a valuable read to parent, policymakers, and practitioners alike. And there are 15 quotes here, but just one more. Uh, Prepare to be enlightened and provoked by one of America's most original thinkers on education reform. In It's the Classroom Stupid, Calvin Hedelman draws on his deep experience in urban education to take on sacred cows and naked emperors wholesale. I fervently hope that this call to reform on research-based classroom teaching finds a receptive audience. So hopefully, this is Bob Slave, and hopefully you are a receptive audience. Buzzy Hedelman. Uh, that was a very kind introduction, Bob. Thank you very much, though. I wouldn't put much credibility in anyone who thinks that the two greatest movies of the 20th century are San Francisco with Clark Gable and Jeanette McDonald. And, okay, well, about that one. I have seen, and the other is Three Amigos with Chevy Chase. So <laughs> you, can take, you can take with a grain of salt uh, his kind words, but I, I do appreciate them very much. 
And my first reading will be from the acknowledgments where I say uh, Bob Embry deserves special mention. He not only critiqued the manuscript, let me add, as only he can. His comments were longer than the footnotes, trust me. But for a long time, he has been my closest colleague and sparring partner in education battles and a dear friend. And the ABLE Foundation is the gold standard for foundation philanthropy in this country uh, related to public education. Because talk about skewering sacred cows. Nobody does it better or more, more productively than the ABLE Foundation does. So thank you, Bob. Um, next, I want to thank uh, the Pratt and Judy Cooper and Carla Hayden for hosting this. It does call to mind that it was about 70 years ago that my mother brought me to the children's reading room in the Pratt Library. There may even be one or two of you, I won't single you out, who may remember that. But my bet, but my, but my, my recollection is maybe somebody correct. It was on Mulberry Street, and there was a fish pond. Huh? It still is. Oh, okay. Well, I haven't been here as much as I should. Uh, but, you know, I really, my mother was a public school teacher, and um, I think it was at Pratt that I first got my love for reading and writing. And I want to thank each of you for coming. Um, most of you know me well, and yet you came anyway. <laughs> and um, and I, I am very grateful. And finally, just one more uh, person to single out, and that is um, the person, the dedication reads most of all to my wife, Myra, for more than written words can say, or spoken words for that matter. And um, I'm not only very, very lucky, but all of you are too, for as big a pain as I am to the education establishment and groups, I'd be much bigger head case and a pain in the butt if it weren't for Myra's uh, calming influence. Now to the kitties, and you know, sometimes you get lost and it is, it is exciting, uh, the trappings of, of writing your, your first and maybe last book, but it is all about the kids, and that's what the book tries to do to look behind the, the cliches and the, and, the, and the stale debates that plague public education and come up with what I consider to be a, uh, an unconventional and contrarian um, look at uh, the debate about public school reform and what can be done. Uh, and I guess I'm proudest that the advanced reviews recognize that I've sort of gone outside the uh, outside everyone's box in terms of trying to come up with some worthwhile um, ideas. Let me put this um, sort of little presentation in two parts. First, to expose the myths that I think um, stand in the way of greater public school reform. I call them in the book the bedrock barriers. They're not terribly visible. Another way of looking at them is they're sort of part of the DNA of the culture of public education that have 
the, the genes that have been unmapped. And the second is to, I do make a series of recommendations and uh, hope that they, um, as we'll go over them briefly, um, do make a contribution. The first, the first myth that I think stands in the way is that educators know best how to reform public education. Let me uh, read to you first um, from the preface and then um, from uh, the chapter uh, that's entitled Educators Are Their Own Worst Enemies. In the preface I write about writing the book, it was painful to reach the conclusion that while there is more than enough blame to go around for the failure of public schools, educators are their own worst enemies. The reference, however, is only to educators who are policymakers in the top tiers of the education establishment in federal, state, and local departments of education, teachers' colleges, and national associations, including teachers' unions. Frontline teachers are my great heroes. From my mother, a public school teacher, to my own teacher as a student in the Baltimore public school system, to the incalculable number of teachers and administrators I have interacted with over the years, my admiration for them knows no bounds. My goal in this book is to honor these heroes by revealing how the, quote, system, end quote, betrays their ideals and how the system can be reformed so that more children can be enabled to succeed. And then um, from Chapter 7, I write, School reform is sure to continue to fail unless unless the self-destructive ways of the leaders of the education profession are exposed and rectified. E.D. Hirsch, Jr. has grasped this truth. Teachers, he writes, are, quote, some of the most dedicated and sympathetic members of our society. Know the enemy is the controlling system of ideas that currently prevents needed changes from being contemplated or understood. It is the enemy within that needs to be defeated. The enemy within, in my view, is the education establishment. I write, though the education establishment is amorphous in structure, its leaders, except in think tanks, tend to act alike. They fail to exert dynamic leadership. They cherish the status quo, blaming the shortcomings of public schools on everyone but themselves. The sum and substance is a policy-making vacuum that ideologues, political officials, and other non-educators, including lay school boards, try to fill. Politicians may be chicken when it comes to bold action to pull school reform out of its rut, but the education establishment laid the egg first. Um, I give one example of this. Uh, No one much likes No Child Left Behind. It's severely criticized as micromanaging what teachers and educators do. But think about it. No Child Left Behind set accountability standards for the first time in our nation's history to hold public school systems accountable for the outcomes of poor children and students with disabilities. Well, why did it take, why did it take George W. Bush 
and Republican need leadership to pass such a law. Why didn't, I'll come back to liberals, we'll put liberals to one side for the moment, but why didn't the education establishment over many, many years, going back to say 1965, when the first federal law to provide money for low-income children, why didn't educators themselves insist on accountability? They didn't. We'll come back to the issue of the role of the education establishment. The second big myth and obstacle, in my view, is that local control of education is the best governance path to reform. Local control, I, one of the themes of the book is ideological warfare, but sad to say one of the few things that liberals and conservatives tend to agree on is that local control of education is best. It's democratic in theory. Who can be against it in theory? Um, local officials are closest to the people and to the neighborhoods, and we wish they would know best. And we don't want feds uh, telling local schools who to pick for principal, principal, what textbooks to use. We don't want them censuring texts. We don't want them micromanaging. And yet, think about it. How does it make sense for 14,000 school districts across this country, much less fi and 50 states, to have their own set of standards and tests. What's different about what you should know about reading or science or literature in uh, a poor state, a rich state, a blue state, a red state, and so forth? And yet, that's the way we structure education in this country. Not just states have different standards and localities, but they have different tests. And there are wild variances in the test, so here again, there's very little accountability. To give you an example, um, there is one national test that's now given. It's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and, it t and while it generally only measures what the states do, it um, has, I think, now 17 cities. And the gap between the performance of students on the federal test and on the state tests in Maryland and across this country, the average gap is between 30 and 50 points. Think about it. So you have states across the country saying, we're doing wonderfully, and some of them are doing better than others, and some cities, particularly Baltimore, are doing better than others. But just to take Baltimore as an example, we show that like 80% of the, and they've only, Baltimore's only been in it for one year in math in the fourth and eighth grades. But according to Maryland tests, 80% of city fourth graders are scoring proficient in math. On the national tests, it's way below half of that. In the eighth grade, it's worse. We show 40%, the federal test shows 10%. I'm gonna talk a lot about how Baltimore is in the forefront, but keep in mind that we do not have a common measuring stick. And it's a severe problem 
with accountability. And so that flies, you know, in the face of, of local control, too. The other thing where local control makes no sense um, is that teaching should be an art. Teachers should have flexibility. But it doesn't make any sense to allow teachers to be able to use curricula and methods that go against scientific research where it exists. And that is commonplace. And one scholar refers to teachers as solo practitioners. And uh, you know, there's a saying that a, a school is a series of autonomous classrooms uh, connected by a common parking lot. The, um, the thing that's very deeply embedded in the culture of education in this country is the notion that teachers should do their own thing in their own way. Now, keep in mind, I want them to have plenty of flexibility, but where there is evidence, scientific evidence, then they should be held to that, and it doesn't exist. Think about it. In other professions, if you don't follow science, it's called malpractice. In education, it's called autonomy. Um, so, um, that's a little bit about the, the deal of local control, and we'll come back to that when I, I get to my recommendations. And the third big obstacle that I'll also just touch upon lightly, but it, 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 it infects everything, is this ideological warfare between liberals and conservatives. Liberals tend to, you know, be anti-testing, for progressive pedagogy, which mean, means, and it's very complicated, but main, mainly the best example is whole language in reading and more um, student-centered, and these are oversimplifications. And they tend to be um, against testing and for more money. Conservatives tend to be for testing, for traditional pedagogy, symbolized by um, uh, phonics, reading instruction, and they tend to be for more privatization and for busting teachers' unions. Well, I say a plague on both houses, and I think you'll see that when I get to the recommendations that I have tried to come up with um, a coherent blending of the two. I, I describe myself in the book when it comes to the ideological education wars in this country that I am usually a man without a country. Um, so, my recommendations. Um, there should be more, not less, federal control of education. Most people, again, think no child left behind goes too far. I think it doesn't go far enough in that no child left behind left up to the 50 states the ability to set their own standards and tests and sanctions. What happened? It's called the race to the bottom in which states wanted to look good, wanted to avoid being in trouble with the feds, and so they dumbed down their standards. And it's been a tragedy for this country. And it has subverted the intent. So I think, as I alluded to before, 
that we need national standards and tests. We're getting close to national standards. Um, We'll come back to the president, but the president and Secretary Duncan are pushing hard to get the states to agree on voluntary standards. I would mandate them. No federal money if you don't have common standards. And, And while they're moving in Washington towards common standards, there's very little movement on national tests. And what good are the standards if you don't have tests. So uh, that still is very much up in the air. The other thing where I think the federal government needs to take over is funding for public education. Again, uh, states are in the business, but states compete with each other. The disparities in funding across this country are vast, as much as twenty-five to $50,000 per classroom per classroom between the wealthiest and the poorest districts. And um, sure, money isn't all that matters. Parents matter, probably more than any other single factor. Research matters. Management matters. But so does money to pay for small class sizes, incentives for teachers to work in high-poverty schools, for interventions for struggling readers, to have classroom uh, coaches for teachers. And it's not going to happen unless the federal government steps in. Maryland has, a, has probably the best law in the country, the Thornton Law, and yet in terms of removing inequities, and yet we're still very short in Baltimore City. And it's never going to happen. The states will never do it. I know the room is packed with liberals. So am I. But... Um, some of my best friends are liberals. Um, But name me one um, major social policy um, in this country that has assisted, dealt with the problems of poor people and minorities that did not have to be enacted by the federal government. Anyone... I know of none, and we go back to civil rights, and we go back to anti-poverty, and we go back to, uh, to, to Social Security and unemployment insurance and SSI and Medic- Medicaid and food stamps. Name me one. It just will never happen. And, and this is a national problem, and it requires, at least in the limited senses in which I've stated it, national solutions. We, we are a country, and we're as dependent on an educated citizenry as we are on a transportation system or, or even the defense, in even a military defense. Um, so the question then rises, if I want all this step up in federal um, uh, involvement, was I sleeping through two weeks ago in Massachusetts? And what makes me, you know, am I, am I pipe dreaming? Well, the polls show surprising support for a larger federal role in these areas. And the other thing to keep in mind, and it's hard because of the polarization on this issue, is that what I am proposing, standards and tests and money, only set what the federal government is setting standards for. In other words, it's setting a floor on the resources and the standards for poor kids and other kids but it doesn't say how 
local school systems are to achieve these standards. This is still left to the local government. So it's not as radical as it may seem at first blush. So what do we do at the local level? Um, Who should we put in charge? And here, as some of you may know, I recommend that school boards should be abolished. Um, I had a self-interest in that when I was on the school board, but even now I'm off, I'm still for it, and mayors should be put in charge. Again, school boards are wonderful in theory. Uh, They represent the community. They're democratic in nature. But school boards really don't have the time or the expertise to make good policy decisions. They simply don't have the time to do it. And even more so, uh, it diffuses executive accountability. Who's responsible for the Baltimore City schools? The governor and the mayor appoint the school board. The school board hires the super. Well, who's responsible in all that? I think we're better off with a single focus of responsibility, which is the way all large organizations, including the federal government, operate. You don't have boards that run the federal departments. Now, there's some federal departments that might benefit from a board, but uh, certainly in good government theory, it's not the way to go about it. School boards can be great. The Baltimore City School Board has been superb since 1997, but it is the exception to the rule and Baltimore, and to go, to, to move into Dr. Alonzo in Baltimore, the Baltimore city is the only city where a reform political effort has been led by the board. If you catalog across those cities that have done the most in the last decade, San Diego, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philadelphia, and particularly Bloomberg and New York City and Fenty and D.C., they were all led by mayors. And so, again, you can get a great school board and a lousy mayor, but I think, I think we have a much better chance to do it. So what do we – and the other thing, part of mayor, is you do have a better chance of hiring a transformational leader like Dr. Alonzo. Um, I think you all know, many of you have heard, you know, I believe that after studying this field that Baltimore has the best chance of any city to reach the next plateau of achievement, to reduce the achievement gap that cuts across races and economic classes, and to raise the whole standard so that we would be achieving, even on the national tests, much higher than we are now. And what has he done? And I can give you the reasons why I think we have a much better chance than D.C. under Michelle Rhee or even um, um, New York under Bloomberg and Klein and so forth. Well, he has first and foremost changed the culture. He's changed the people at the top and the culture. It is now a no-excuse, no-establishment culture. And he's brought in outside management capacity. Let me digress for one minute. 
The other major theme that ties into this in the book, which is, I think, the most novel theme in the book, is uh, the part that I call uh, better weapons of mass instruction. Um, Let me, my final reading of the evening, let me read from the introduction to part five, better weapons of mass instruction. The mismanagement of classroom instruction is the ugly secret and fatal flaw of school failure. Everyone knows that school systems are horrendously mismanaged. The media keep us fully informed and outraged at bureaucratic foul-ups. I'll skip the examples. But these management failings, as serious as they are, tell only a small part of the story. They only recite the non-instructional mismanagement. There is, of course, fallout from this mismanagement on the classroom. Teachers and students are distracted and, and impeded. Even so, the damage pales in comparison to the, cause, to the harm caused by management malfunctions in the design, professional training, delivery, monitoring, and supervision of classroom instruction. Parents and the public rarely glimpse these breakdowns, and some people may glaze over them as too much educational inside baseball but they are the ones that most depress student achievement and um, demoralize um, and demoralize teachers. Dr. Alonzo has partially addressed this great failing. He's addressed it by changing the culture of expectations. He has uh, wonderfully brought in outside management capacity both in terms of helping him, for example, the fair student funding and giving principals autonomy. He had outside consultants do that work. And now I hope you saw the Morning Sun, which is a classic vintage Alonzo, a bold program to expand middle school choice for students, where it's a mixture of you can choose their magnets, their charters, their contract schools. I don't think... Some schools systems in the country have moved to do this with high schools, none more so than Baltimore. And Alonzo was the first to carry this to the middle school level. It's a, it's a, a giant step in the right direction, an extremely bold thing to pull off. Um, but I think that he needs to go a step farther than he has gone so far. And I think he understands his issues, and he tells me that he's going to get there. But he does not have, and trust me, I think he's the best in the country, and we're so lucky to have him. He doesn't have the management of the design and delivery in his gut like he does principal's autonomy and bringing in an outside portfolio of schools. Um, And I think that Baltimore, any city, will only go so far unless they can internalize, institutionalize ways of getting down to the teachers and students in the classroom. 
It's fine to change the principle and to give the principle all the flexibility in the world. It's fine to bring in charter schools. But the, the evidence on charter schools is mixed, and the one thing that's clear is that charter schools have not brought about any significant instructional innovations or ways that can be transplanted into public schools. So I think that if, if Baltimore is to really go all the way under Dr. Alonzo, he not only has to stay, but I think he gradually has to rebuild uh, the centf- central inf- inst- instructional infrastructure. Um, of all the contrarian things I say, I say beef up the bureaucracy. Um, that means that you've got to have people at North Avenue who know research-based instruction, who will uh, set um, reasonable expectations, lesson plans, expectations. Teachers are dumped on all the time with no realistic alignment between what they're supposed to teach and the time and the tools that are given to them. And there must be supervision. There's, There's almost no supervision in the education field. It's a, granted, um, it exists in all bureaucracies, but for reasons we can go into. In many ways, um, I write that education is beyond the Dilbert norm. Um, there are many reasons why, in many ways, education is, is a more difficult bureaucracy. So um, let me stop here, and I would love to have any questions, comments, please yell back at me. I am used to it. I have developed a hard skin in many years of taking on the uh, trying to take on. And again, I, just let me put it once again in context. I love teachers, and they are the most wonderful human beings in the world. And I just hope, and I say it many times in the book, I hope that my criticisms about the education establishment are not taken to in any way um, portray a different belief on my part. So, questions? I know, oh, well, because again, because there's so many, go ahead, ask the questions. I'll, get, I'll come back to all you liberals in a second. Thank you, it's been nice. <laughs> Yes, Dana. What is your view on I chaired the Mayor's Commission on Community Schools before you were born. Um, community, community schools are wonderful. And what I look, first of all, it can mean many things. Back in the 60s, it meant community control, which was a disaster. Wonderful in theory, it was a catastrophe in New York, Chicago, where it went the most. And if any of you all remember Arnold O. Hopkins in Baltimore, it was a catastrophe here, too. Today, it usually means bringing in services and engaging the community in the schools. It's absolutely wonderful. It's very expensive. And, uh, you know, there are people working towards that. And, um, you know, the found, I think foundations are supporting, you know, community schools. It's just very difficult to pull off because of resources. But... It's, you know, it's indispensable to, and not just for the kids, for the families, get the families into the schools. Sure. Yeah. I never talked this 
Better not be from Mabel. It's not from Mabel. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, like Myra and I did with two of our sons that we put in private, two of our four sons who we put in private school, one of whom we put in while I was on the school board the first time, you should be getting parents to buy the best education for their particular children. And there's no substitute for having good schools. Charter schools are public schools. These contract schools are public schools. Transformation are all public schools. So hopefully, you know, you would be working... And also, you know, and again, this is a great strength of Dr. Alonzo, and there is a movement. Uh, enrollment is up for the fir- in the public schools for the first time in I don't know how many years. Now, some of that is the economy, but also a lot of it is charter schools and restoring confidence. And so it's another thing the mayor can and should do more is to sell the public school system. It's an important role. And... The greater the stake you give in the mayor, the mayor, the greater the mayor is going to commit the bully pulpit and city resources to supporting the schools. Mayor Bloomberg and Mayor Fenty in D.C. have both said publicly, they got rid of school boards, and they both said publicly, I want to be judged. My legacy, I want to be judged on how well the schools do. That's leadership. And there's you know, and, and they're doing terrific things. Not as, I don't think they're as well off as Baltimore, but they're doing good things. Yes? Yeah, I guess I'm having a little bit of trouble with your proposal. Um, I was wondering if you could clarify for me. Um, I guess, on the one hand, you're arguing that there should be, like, more streamlining of power and mayoral control. And on the other hand, that we should beef up bureaucracy. And then you're also arguing that uh, we should be streamlining standards, but also beefing up content. And those two things have often been seen to contradict in the classroom. So I'm just sort of wondering, where does your proposal fall in terms of, you know, are you Are you a classroom teacher? I hope you are. Not That's a good question. Oh, okay. But I hope you will be. Um, well, it's difficult to sort it all out. The feds set the standards, okay. Then in my scheme of things, the mayor appoints a non-traditional CEO who will shake things up. Part of the shake-up would be to ensure that principals and teachers are given the best research-based curriculum and that they're given the training and that they're given the coaching that they need. And within that framework of prescriptive best practices where they exist and they don't exist in every area then teachers have you know plenty of room for creativity and flexibility and that will actually believe it or not will simplify things for for teachers i mean you read the literature about teachers you know teachers don't want more money 
They want to be supported in the classroom. And what does that mean? They want to be given realistic expectations. They want class sizes that aren't too large. And they want proper training. That's what they want. And um, that's also lost uh, in education because of the ideological warfare over teachers' unions, about which I will say a word if you want, because it may probably be on people's minds. The unions have made it more difficult than should be to get rid of bad teachers. And unions in some places have resisted reform. On the other hand, the greatest uh, educational leader, in my opinion, Myra, I said in my opinion, of the 20th century was Albert Shanker, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, who led the fight for standards and who led the fight for reform. And, and unions vary. Right now, the AFT, you know, it's divided between the NEA, which is much larger, and the AFT, which is in most of the, many of the big cities like Baltimore and New York and D.C. And Randy Weingartner, the head and a successor to Albert Shanker, is, I think, getting a little bit ahead of the, the curve of school reform. And the other thing is, of course, education conservatives want to get, want to get rid of unions. But one of the most conservative think tanks in this country, called the Fordham Institute, did a study in which they said, much to our own surprise, if you look closely at the um, uh, collective bargaining agreements in, in big cities, that there is plenty of latitude to get rid of teachers. But that latitude is not exercised because everybody, it's collegial. And nobody wants to blow the whistle on everybody else. And sometimes they're, you know, the same sorority or fraternity or church. And, you know, well, if, if you get on me today, it may be you tomorrow. And so it, it, it's collegial inertia. It's not the limits of the collective bargaining agreements, even though things could be made easier. And that's one of the things that Obama and Duncan are trying to do uh, with this uh, stimulus money. Mike, I'm oh, sorry. Thank you for asking. In, in my new education federalism, as I call it, the federal government is at the top and the mayor and local school systems are at the base. And as I write, I have not accidentally overlooked states governments and State Department of Education. They will never do the job any more than state governments have looked out for the needs of the poor and minorities. Maryland is, Nancy Grasmick has done probably as well as any superintendent in the country over the last however many years she's been there, close to 20 now or something like that. And Maryland has been in the forefront and yet of standards and financing, and yet, um, you know, the state did nothing to shake up Baltimore City, except, you know, wage some political fights. So it's not in the nature of state governments to take the lead. There's just too much competition between states. State departments are torn. They have to cater to suburban districts. They have to cater to rural districts. Now they're 
There are poor kids and there are poor students everywhere. But the real fight for the soul of America, the greatest civil right in America, pertains to a decent education. And there the problem is concentrated in the cities. And State Department of Education will always be torn and divided in terms of how much they are willing to do politically and are able to do. So again, I come back to the question, name me an area of social policy of great benefit to the poor and minorities that states have ever pulled off. Sometimes they have been Justice Brandeis's laboratories of democracy, and some states have moved ahead. Maryland was a leader to some extent in, in setting standards, but nowhere, uh, it's, it, just, it just won't work. Yes, Debbie. Yeah. What does science say is the best way to teach Science says with respect to early reading, which is the most important foundational skill for everything else, that and this is an that phonics is a better approach than whole language. Now you would think that people would be moving you know, and would find a hybrid and balanced way. And some people use the term balanced literacy, but most of the people use balanced literacy really mean whole language. And it's hard to imagine how polarized that is after 100 years. And it was fought out, uh, the Reading First program under No Child, the past at the time of No Child Left Behind. And it is, and, 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 subterranean warfare is going on in Baltimore City as we speak over how progressive the pedagogy will be. As you get, you know, and that's not to say that you shouldn't be child-centered and teach thinking skills. Of Of course you should. But the polarization doesn't take into account that when you're in the early grades, you got to get the basics. And then, as you get up and higher, of course. But you can't learn higher-order skills until you have a foundation of skill and content. And you would think we'd be able to find some balanced ground, but the warfare goes on and on on that. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say it. But the one area where, you know, there's as much research on this on early reading as there is anywhere in the National Reading Panel. And, but um, uh, educational progressives uh, don't accept it and are fighting a rear guard action. And um, it's very sad. And um, hope, you know, oh, oh, the president and, and Secretary Duncan are trying to push um, the use of research and um, but it, it continues to be a struggle, and it hurts. It hurts. Ralphie? Uh, who's going to play in the movie? <laughs> um, well, pa- Paul Newman is not available. Um, I think it's going to be Eminem. Eminem. My, my question goes back to the, the relationship with mayors. What's your sense of the mayor-to-be's relationship to, to Alonzo? And um, and just education in general. What's your sense of that? Well, I I have had no real personal contact with Miss 
Rawlings Blake, but I think I may have written this in one of the Sun Paper columns. When the school board, when the school board under Brian Morris's magnificent leadership, voted nine to nothing to bring in a non-African American after we had a white predecessor. Um, Brian went down to talk to Sheila Dixon and Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Is there any press here? Okay. Um, Sheila vacillated. She was waiting to see which way the political winds would blow in the community in terms of how would this be taken. It was very tough. I mean, eventually, the community was great, as well as the 9 nothing vote in the school board. And Brian came back and said that, but he said Stephanie Rawlings-Blake was great, that she seemed to get it right off the bat and was very supportive. Um, that's really my own contact. I do know, I mean, what's very disappointing is that she has formed an education transition task force, and Ralph Moore is the co-chairman. That fellow sitting there, and that is, you know, the end of public schooling. <laughs> That is the end. So, does she? I can't imagine that you know she you know knows much about education. Actually, it's it's one. And you know, Muriel Berkeley is the is the co-chair, and it's um, and that's and and that is and that is hopeful too. Any? Yeah, right. problem was that he kept moving his age back, and I think he finally got back to something like six months. If you don't get it by six months, you've lost them. And this goes uh, in line with what you said. If you don't take them to read, if they're not reading by the time they get to schools, the schools have got somebody that is basically uneducable. Now, that, that's a kind of pessimistic way to look at it, but that's what Burton said. Does that... Well, I don't recognize the name Burton, but if there's one particular area of my interest, it is early identification and, and intervention of reading problems. And uh, thanks to the Able Foundation, I wrote a report on that. And um, Able Foundation helped to fund the strongest pilot project in the country for early identification and intervention of children beginning in pre-K. Now let me go back to, to six months. Programs, you know, there's a whole body of programs, zero to three, zero to four, and they're terribly important and they're wonderful. And there's extensive literature that shows when children, you know, when poor children enter school at the age of four or five, their vocabulary is, you know, one-tenth of what it is for even in working-class families. But I don't agree that you can't catch up at that age. It's harder to catch up each year. But there is research, none better than in Baltimore, that, and, and you know, that shows that you, you, you can identify um, reading problems as early as four. Now, 
ideolo- that in itself has been part of the ideological warfare in this country for 30 years. Head Start is, is the most visible manifestation of that. There are two schools of thought about what Head Start should be. Should he- Head Start concentrate on the social, emotional domains, or should they concentrate on the ac- academic domains? And most early development people, going back to the people in Maryland and all over the country, have wanted to keep academic content out of the Head Start early childhood curriculum. They say children aren't ready. And then, of course, they demonize it and say it's drill and kill. And, you know, what are you going to do, drill and kill four-year-olds? But there are curricula and programs that strike a balance and that provide, and there is new science that's out now, I think I've seen in the last couple of months, that show that, you know, young brains at the age of three and four are ready to receive this kind of material. Now, and it can be done in a developmentally appropriate way, which is not to say that children don't vary in their developmental trajectories, but good teachers and good screening instruments would tell you that. So it is the single most important thing in terms of ever getting at the um, achievement gap. And I think we are slowly working our way um, in that direction. But it's, but it's, been, part, it's been a real ideological struggle uh, that's existed for many years. Yes? What is your opinion about um, performance-based teaching? Well, I think teachers need to be evaluated taking into account um, uh, observations and teacher and student performance. And, you know, that's one of the big issues that's out there, and, and Obama and Duncan are pushing very hard. If you want to get more of this federal money, you're going to have to use data, have data available that's, that's, that can track teacher performance. So I think it's very important to be able to evaluate teachers in a much better way than we do. And keep in mind that these data systems would enable you to, to overcome, you know, different classes have more or less um, strong kids and this and that. But you can track the pre and post data in order to isolate, roughly speaking, you know, the impact of the teacher. That said, I don't think, you know, merit pay will work. It's been tried in uh, Denver and Rochester, and there, you know, and it's good in theory, but I don't think you can name me any large organization, you know, maybe outside of Goldman Sachs, where, you know, people get paid and, you know, based on what people think they're worth. It just, it's too hard to do, and so I don't think it will, it, ha- it hasn't worked, and a lot of time has been spent on it. Um, but I do believe that there should be incentives for teachers to work in high-poverty, low-achieving schools and where you have shortages. And I think we, even in Baltimore City today, we do pay more for teachers who come in and teach special ed and math and science. So those are the kind of incentives that I would provide. Okay. Thank you all very much. Thanks again.
thank you mr commissioner